I'll invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Proverbs 7. Continuing in our family series, the title of the sermon, Father's Greatest Act in Protecting Young Men, but uh, the message will be applicable to all men in here, uh, though the warning is toward young men. We live in an age that is different from any age in the history of man. An age of communication and information that people of former generations could only dream of. And this presents incredible advantages to our generation, but it, but it also comes with very real and new dangers. Over the next two Sunday evenings, I'm going to address one of the largest of these dangers tonight for young men, next week for young ladies. And they both have to do with this digital generation in which we live and the access it affords, coupled with the extremely sexualized culture within which we live. It's such a big problem because there's a huge generation gap that has been created with technology. Perhaps one of the most, the largest and most natural generation gaps, again, that history has ever seen. Young people are growing up with and using technology which their parents simply don't understand. And if their parents do understand it, they cannot keep pace with the technology with the degree to which it's changing. And because of this disparity, parents oftentimes don't understand the danger that these technologies pose and cannot understand how to properly protect their children from the dangers of these technologies. Now, when all is said and done, it's, it's the responsibility we know of the father to protect his children. And fathers, if, if you are allowing to, your children to participate in things and to do things that you simply don't understand, you're still responsible for them, for your children. And you have put both yourself and your children in a bit of a difficult circumstance, a precarious position. And today I'd like to help our fathers understand the old danger, because it's an old, old danger. It's a common danger. It's a danger that's been around. It's a danger that every man contends with in his life. But also to understand the new way that this danger is presenting itself and, and encourage you to do something about it to understand enough to protect your sons. And while I, in application today, will speak of these dangers in terms of technology, as I mentioned, the problem is bigger than technology, and the problem is as old as man himself. And for an understanding of this danger, we turn to Proverbs 7. We read in Proverbs 7, verses 1 through 5, My son, keep my words, and lay up my commandments with thee, Keep my commandments and live, and my law as the apple of thine eye. Bind them upon thy fingers, write them upon the table of thine heart. Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman, that they may keep thee from the strange woman, from the stranger which flattereth with her words. Solomon, presumably writing here, exhorts his son to listen to him to lay up his teachings, to hold them close, to bind them upon his heart. He exhorts his child unto wisdom and says specifically that this wisdom is intended to keep his son from the strange woman, from the woman that flattereth with her words. And, and this is what we're talking about this evening. Young men learning wisdom, fathers helping them to learn and understand wisdom, to protect them from a particular danger, and that particular danger being the indiscreet woman. When the Bible speaks of wisdom, we understand that the very foundation of wisdom is the fear of God. Wisdom is not knowledge, it is understanding. We might say that it's applied knowledge. When you take what you know and you allow it to influence the way you live your wife, life. Excuse me. Proverbs 4.7 tells us that wisdom is the principal thing. And so it says, therefore, get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. The scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you have no talents, 
young or old alike, if you have no talent, if you have no beauty, if you have no ability whatsoever and you have wisdom, you are yet a man or a woman that is deeply blessed. And the warning comes in the form of Solomon's own observations. We read in verses 6 and 7 of Proverbs 7, For at the window of my house I looked through my casement and beheld among the simple ones, I discern among the youths a young man void of understanding. The youth among us are notoriously lacking in wisdom. And this for two distinct reasons. Young people lack wisdom first and foremost, because they lack the experience that builds wisdom. Secondly, they lack wisdom because they lack the humility to trust those that have it. Those that have wisdom. And these two are related in part, but they're also quite distinct. The wisdom that comes with experience often also is accompanied by regret. That when we have to learn things the hard way, it comes with understanding things the difficult way. Young people finally figure out that something is wrong when they have tried it and found it to be wrong. People finally can testify this will wreck your life because it nearly wrecked theirs, or perhaps it did wreck theirs. The wisdom that comes from teaching, though, young people, it's more difficult for you to accept. Because you have to accept it on someone else's word. It means you have to have the humility to trust those who have come before you. To trust those who have done it. To trust those who have experienced it. To trust those who understand more than you do. But with that wisdom, if you accept that which others teach you as reflected in the word of God. Or accept it from the word of God itself, even better. You spare yourself from the regret. That comes from learning the hard way. And as Solomon looks out his window, he observes a young man and he says, that young man, he says, I I observed among the youth a young man, pinpointed one of them, void of understanding. And how does Solomon know that this is a young man void of understanding? He knows this because of what the young man is going to do next. And we read about this in verses 8 and 9. He says, passing through the streets near her corner... And he went the way to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. Solomon sees the young man passing near the corner of one only called thus far her. Her corner. He went into the street near her corner. He went in the way toward her house. And the timing, the the time in which this takes place matters to us. In the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night, he was going toward her corner near her house when it was nighttime, when it was dark. The scenario paints a picture of a young man walking near the house of a certain woman as darkness has fallen or is falling. We continue in verses 10 through 12. And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of an harlot and subtle of heart. She is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. Now is she without, outside the house, now in the streets. And lieth in wait at every corner. Here we find out the character of this woman whose house is near the street where this young man is walking at night. He says she has the attire of an harlot. She is a woman of immorality, of promiscuity. She is a woman that is not morally pure. She's a harlot. She's a prostitute. And notice how she's described a woman of subtle heart. She knows how to get her way. She knows how to influence people. But what else about her character? She is loud and stubborn. Remember this morning we talked about a woman of virtue? And what was she? A woman with a meek and quiet spirit. 
We'll talk about this more next week, young ladies, when we get to you. But this woman was a woman who was loud and stubborn. Solomon is watching this play out. He sees a man walking toward this woman's house, toward this woman's corner. He sees this woman not in her house. Solomon says she doesn't rest in her house. She instead is in the street. She's in the corner. She's, she's lurking. She is hunting. She's seeking. Far from the character of a virtuous woman who has a meek and quiet spirit, this woman has the attire of a harlot and she is loud and stubborn. She's a boisterous woman. She's an opinionated woman. The implication is that she's very forward. She has no propriety. She has no discretion. She is out seeking attention. She's lying in wait. She's looking for something. And more specifically, she's looking for someone. Verses 13 through 15. So she caught him and kissed him and said with an impudent face, or excuse me, with an impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day have I paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee diligently to seek thy face and I have found thee. As the narrative continues, as Solomon watches this harlot and this young man, he watches her grab him and kiss him. This would be that, that personality, that forward personality, that, that uh, impropriety that he sees. And then she began speaking to him. And, and it says she begins speaking to him with an impudent face. What is that word, impudent? To be impudent is to be everything that we've already described this woman to be. An impudent face is, is a, an expression on one's face. That lacks modesty, that lacks humility. You might describe it as an arrogant look. You might describe it as a forward look. You might describe it as a, a look of impropriety. It's an expression of immoral purpose, an expression of perverse arrogance. She, she has confidence in her hunting. She is going with a purpose to be fulfilled. There's no humility in her act. There's, there's nothing of dignity in what she's doing, and it's written all over her face. Men, you know the kind of women, if it, fathers, older men, you know the kind of women being spoken of here. We've all come across these women. It's written all over their face. And it is with this kind of personal determination unto evil that she approaches this young man. And she then very presumptuously grabs him and kisses him. And she says, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. The concept of peace offerings in Israel. There's some theories as to what she's saying here. Nobody is fully in agreement. But when we look at what peace offerings are in Israel, the peace offerings were an offering given to the Lord where a portion went to Jehovah, a portion went to the priest, and the remainder was to be eaten by the person that offered it. In this, the fact that this harlot has gone and she has made a peace offering that day, and she has brought back her portion with her, she gives a false impression of piety, an excuse for the young man's presence, I have this meat to eat, she is also implying that there's some level of, um, of propriety in her, of sorts. She's trying to justify her actions. Why should the young man join her? Well, because she has, has, she has this pious offering to eat, and it needs to be eaten. She can't do it alone, so will you come in and join me for this pious offering? totally upright, offering. This kind of a woman, we've already talked about the fact that she knows how to get her way. She will sometimes come through the back door. If she can't hit a man head on who's looking for immoral purposes, she might just come through a back door to try to convince a man to be led into her snare. How often have men and women been ensnared in sexual sin by falling for some feeble explanation, some seemingly 
innocent activity which then snowballs into that which is immoral. Where one person has in their mind the whole time how they are going to ensnare a person in sin and yet they give some sort of valid reason for a circumstance. How often have the wicked ensnared the ignorant with promises of innocent intentions which are no more innocent than a mousetrap. Innocent men and women are lured with the promises of of, of, of virtuous enjoyment only to be ensnared by the bondage of wickedness. And notice what she then says, and this is very interesting. She says, I came forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face. I have found thee. The, the second person singular pronoun. I'm looking for you specifically. I was looking for you. I came to find you. I found you. This woman speaks as if this particular young man was her goal. She was looking for him. She speaks as if she truly cares for him. The allurements of sexual sin do not often come saying, Hey, look, I have come to tear, tear, to tear your soul apart. I have come to introduce you to fleshly lusts which war against your soul. I have come to drag you into this pit of sexual immorality. They come and say, I have peace offerings. Come join me for this peace offering. I've been looking for you. I care about you. I want you. But what is he other than prey? Whether it was that guy or that guy or that guy or that guy or that guy, she would have said the same thing. You, I want you. I was looking for you. I care about you. She would have said the same thing to any other man that would come around her corner. He is nothing more than, than a piece of meat to be preyed upon. The wolf does not choose carefully his sheep, except to find out perhaps which one is the weakest, so he can devour it easier. An immoral woman, regardless of what she says, cares no more for the object of her immorality than a wolf does for his next kill. She lures the unsuspecting with her charms. She lures the unsuspecting with her words. She lures the unsuspecting with her lies. And as we continue to read in verses 16 and 17, we find this. She says, I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrhs and aloes and cinnamons. She states her case with the assurances of her preparations. If I may translate these two verses into modern language, she effectively is saying, look, I've got everything ready for us to have a really great time. Come now, everything is prepared. I've looked for you, I waited for you, I found you, I want you, I'm prepared for you. Doesn't he just feel so special? Doesn't he just feel so wanted? And then she gives her biggest argument. Any final fears that this young man that is void of understanding might have had, I mean, he's probably a a well-meaning young man goes by the corner. He probably says, I'm strong enough. I can handle this corner. I can handle the corner, right? I mean, she had her house. I can handle her corner. And he goes and she, but she knows. She knows how to influence. She knows what to say. And she gives the argument. I've got my peace offerings. I was looking for you. I care about you. I've got my, the, the bed is, is, is decked with, with fine linens and perfumed and it's ready. And then she says this, she says in verses 18 through 20, Come, let us take our fill of love until the morning. Let us solace ourselves with loves, for the good man is not at home. He has gone a long journey. He hath taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. Her biggest argument, allaying his fears, no one will ever know what we've done. My, my, the, the good man, he's gone. He took a big bag of money with him. That means he's going to be gone a while. He's not going to come back early. He's not coming back till the day appointed. He won't be back. We won't get caught. The fear of consequence is a great deterrent, is it not? With most men, with, in most situations, men or women with any sin, the fear of consequence is one of the greatest deterrents of sin, right? I'm not going to take that cookie from the cookie jar because if my parents found out, I'd be in trouble. I'm not going to fall into that sinful lifestyle because if my boss found out, if my wife found out, if my husband found out, if my church found out, I would 
lose everything that I love and work so hard to gain. But when that fear is gone, a man will do much more than he would otherwise do. Remember that point, because that's going to come up again in a big way. So she allures him with the comfort of anonymity into a secret affair of immoral passion. She uses the word love, but by it she means absolutely nothing like true love. Instead, it's the world's love, driven by feelings, into actions. Feelings which are contrary to the will of God. Actions which are contrary to the word of God. And contrary to human dignity. And so we read the sad conclusion of our tale in verses 21. We'll we'll continue through verse 27. But 21 through 23 is the conclusion of his observations. Remember, Solomon's watching this take place. With her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. He goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, or as a fool to the correction of the stalks, till a dart strike through his liver, as a bird hasteth to the snare, and knoweth not that it is for his life. He's convinced. Convinced that this woman cares for him, or at least wants him there. Convinced that this relationship for this night, this immoral interlude is worth the risk. Convinced he won't get caught. Convinced this is what he wants. Convinced this will make him happy. And he goes after her, it says, as an ox to the slaughter. Have you ever seen maybe a video of all the cows being brought into one by one into the gate so that they can be slaughtered one by one and they just walk themselves right in there one by one. He says, or as a fool to the stocks, right? As, as, an, as a fool to the jail cell. They just, they find their way there, don't they? And he says that he follows this wicked lifestyle until a dart strike through his liver. That's an interesting statement, is it not? Until a dart strike through his liver. In the Hebrew mind, and this is not just a Hebrew mind, we see it in the Greek mind and in the Roman mind, the liver, I mean, you know how in the scriptures, organs were all given a, a seat of something, right? The heart is the seat of your emotion. The bowels, or excuse me, the heart is the seat of your will. The bowels are the seat of your emotion, right? Your bowels yearn upon something. Uh, the loins are the seat of strength, the place of strength, the place of posterity. The liver was seen as the place of sensual passion. That was the seat of of sensual passion. So this man's killing blow comes through the medium of his lust for sensual immorality. That's what will destroy him. The dart, the arrow will pierce through his liver. Not through his heart, not through his bowels, not through his loins, through his liver. the, The means of his destruction will be his sexual immorality. His lust for immoral passions. He doesn't realize that as he follows this woman into immoral action, he is following her into his own destruction. Destruction of his spirit. Fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He's following her into the remorse that it will be upon his soul. Disease upon his body. Loss of all testimony and reputation. This is what he is following her unto. But he won't know it until the arrow pierces his liver. Until he gets, until he is destroyed. And Solomon is watching this young, foolish boy fall into the snare of the harlot. And then Solomon says this, and by the way, Solomon would know a thing or two about immoral passion, wouldn't he? The man with 700 concubines and 300 wives. He would know a thing or two. He would understand a thing or two by experience and regret. 
He says this in verses 24 to 27. Hearken unto me now, therefore, O ye children, and attend unto the words of my mouth. Listen to me, children, ye children, all of you children, whoever will read, whoever will listen. Young men, learn wisdom here. Learn wisdom here. Let not thine heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her paths. Don't go near the corner. Don't even start down the path. For she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell going down to the chambers of death. I don't know that this could be more serious, men. I don't know that this could be expressed more seriously than it is expressed here. The wisest man who ever lived, apart from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself, who inspired these scriptures, read in the inspired word of God, said this, don't decline your heart to the ways of the immoral woman. Don't go down her path. If you listen in society today, it's all about men, right? Men coaxing women. Men, uh, you know, the, the big thing in third wave feminism, like we talked about this morning, is rape culture. There's rape culture. All of these men, men are scum, men are at fault, men, men, men. And yet, as we read Proverbs, we don't read many warnings to women saying, watch out for these types of men. But we read several warnings to men about watch out for these types of women. And again, women, I'm not trying to minimize that there are scumbag men out there at all. But men, there is a war for your soul going on. And there are immoral women on the front lines fighting against you. The immoral woman, she will chew you up and when she's finished with you, she will leave you mangled and lying on the side of the road. She has slain many men And men, this is what you need to remember. Solomon says she has cast down many wounded, but notice the next phrase. Many strong men have been slain by her. Perhaps that young man walking by her corner at night said, I can handle this. She won't tempt me. And Solomon looks from his casement and he says, what a fool. Many stronger men than he have been destroyed by women such as this. You can't handle it. You aren't strong enough. You don't have your passions under control enough. You must stay away from these temptations. Her house, he says, is the way to hell. Her chambers, her bedroom, leads to death. The very worst of spiritual destruction is contained in sexual sins. Paul warned in 1 Corinthians that every man that sins, it's an external thing, but the man who who commits adultery sins against his own body. Such is the strength of the warning which God gives to men concerning sexual impurity. And within this context comes our application this evening. Point number one. And this is where, fathers, you really need to start listening. Of course, I hope you were listening already because much of this was for you as well. But this is where, fathers, you need to perk your ears. Because when it comes to our sons, first thing you need to know, this digital age is fraught with danger. As we apply this evening, I've given you the teaching about the danger of sexual immorality, about the danger of these things. But... It's quite obvious that these dangers have always been there, right? In Solomon's day. Solomon didn't have print and internet and digital. He wasn't in the digital age, but but these dangers were still there. These women are still out there. But the world has changed. No longer does a man need to risk his reputation to pursue immoral passions. No longer does a man need to step out of his home and go to a club or go to the magazine rack in order to indulge his sexual passions. This great sin, men, fathers, this great sin is in your home. Where it can be accessed for free behind closed doors. And this is terrifying. Television and internet 
the digital age is what we're speaking of here. The internet is a wonderful place of information. It's a tremendous utility. But the internet is full of danger, pornography, digital prostitution. And in no other age has sexual immorality been easier to access. Therefore, in no other age has this sin been so accessible to good, godly homes and young people. I mentioned at the outset, one of the biggest problems here is the generation gap. When a mom goes to a store in a previous generation, at least I know that it was this way with me, of course, I grew up pre-internet. The internet came into uh, our home when I was probably 14, 15, somewhere around there. Growing up pre-internet, when we went to a store, there was a particular area of that store my mom would not let me go near, and that was the magazine aisle. She simply kept me away from it. The magazine aisle was a lurid and tepid area of the store where even if you weren't going to find the particularly, um, the worst provocative magazines on the shelf, you were going to find plenty of them there. But the danger is no longer when you go to the store to keep your son away from the magazine aisle. Those same temptations, those same problems are a click of the remote away. Those same temptations and problems are a click of the mouse away. Those same temptations and problems are right here. Carried around with many of us all the time. That's where the danger is today. And a young man doesn't need anymore to work up the courage to buy a magazine and hide it in his room under his bed where it might just be found one day when mom is vacuuming the floor. He doesn't have to worry about that anymore. He can get caught online, but all he has to do is see what he wants to see, delete his browsing history, and it's gone. And the less you know about technology, parents, the more dangerous this is. The less you understand, the more dangerous it is. Did you know that a person can clear every every bit of, of evidence of what he did online with the click of one mouse button? Did you know it's that easy? Did you know it's that easy to leave no trace outside of going to your... IP provider, your internet provider, and using their logs, they keep logs. Do you know there's ways around that for free as well? Very easily? You must be educated enough, parents, to protect your sons. See, because that corner, that corner with the harlot, that corner can be accessed from your home from any screen that's connected to the internet or from a screen that's connected to the television. And that corner might be stumbled upon the first time, but that one taste might be enough to send your son looking for that corner the next time. And it's very easy for him to find it. Parents, you must be educated enough to protect your sons. Or they have a very high chance of finding their way into a sin which is spiritually devastating and may destroy his life or his relationships. And it's not a game. It's not a joke. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. Parents, if you don't have filters on the internet, you're doing something wrong. If you have unfettered access to television without accountability you're doing something wrong. If you're allowing your children to have cell phone access with either data services or even picture messaging among friends without protections, you're doing something wrong. If you allow your children to use social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, without some form of accountability, you're doing something wrong. Now, I'm not saying you can't trust your children. I'm not saying that you should demand their passwords, that you should look over their shoulder, that you should listen in their phone calls. I'm not saying that. Don't go there. 
But if you don't have established accountability with your children in this digital age, you're playing a very dangerous game. Sexual predators, online prostitution, pornography everywhere, sexting, where young people are sending pictures of themselves without clothing to one another over their cell phones. They don't even need data access. The internet is a sexual wasteland and so much of it is free that there's nothing that cannot be found, nothing that cannot be accessed with very little technical knowledge required. This digital age is fraught with danger and parents, you need to know that. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. Believe me, I have a bachelor's degree in computer science. I'm not blowing this out of proportion. It's a dangerous world out there. And our children are right in the middle of it. Very innocently. Number two. Not all harlots come with labels. Not all harlots come with labels. It used to be one could expect most young people to be honorable and modest and decent. And those who are not would be obvious. She's the one you stay away from. A simple walk through Walmart is enough to remind us we don't live in simple times any longer. We are in a completely sexualized culture. Young ladies have no concept of virtue because they have not been taught virtue. Young ladies who believe it is, and I'm using that term loosely, uh, young ladies who believe it is perfectly acceptable to walk around in clothing which amounts to nothing more than underwear in public. And they don't understand what this does to a man's mind. But fathers, you know. You understand. And as your young men get into their teenage years, you know what they will be going through. Except that now it's worse than ever before. Maybe not in history, but definitely in this culture. Even those in Christian circles, often in conservative Christian circles, allow their women to wear things which are very revealing. And they think nothing of it. And when they're told that their attire might be a problem, their spiritual immaturity causes them to become upset and offended rather than to be concerned and careful. They become upset. They accuse men of demanding women to make up for their lack of self-control. Well, why should I have to, to, to put on more clothing? Why don't you just learn to control your mind? Women, it doesn't quite work that way. Yes, men need to learn how to control themselves. But... Look, we're men. We're wired a certain way. We're visual by nature. You dangle a carrot in front of a horse and then you get angry at the horse for snapping at it? You don't do that. The prototypical woman in the eyes of culture today is a loud, assertive, proud, proud of her body, right? Ready to show it off. It's my body. Proud of it. The women of this culture are indiscreet at best, deeply immoral at worst. Call it what you will, this attitude is the very same type of attitude which was reflected of the woman in Proverbs chapter 7. And this is the very fabric of the culture in which we live. Having begun in the late 60s, continuing today uninhibited, and men are in a difficult spot because of this. Women with the spirit of harlotry, they may not have, they may, they, they may not be in the business, but a lot of them sure act like it. Women with little regard for moral purity, little regard for the minds of men, they're everywhere. Our culture is so sexually uninhibited that it is expected that young people will be sexually active before leaving high school. We know that, right? I mean, that's the, it's expected. As a matter of fact, that's where, what some of the vaccines are for today, right? Simply because they expect young people to be sexually active. So sexually unrestrained is our culture that these things have become standard issue. Immunizations for STDs. Parents, young people, that which is sexually immoral no longer comes with that label. In our culture, it comes with the label that says normal, standard. And this brings us to our third point. 
Yes, I'm talking about your son. Yes, I'm talking about your son. You don't know my son, Pastor. He's not like that. Yes, I'm talking about your son. We parents have a problem believing our children capable of certain things. This kind of goes back to what we warned about last week when I was warning you about raising your children that we're afraid to talk to our kids. We'd rather just assume that they're being good because they're good kids externally, that their hearts are where they need to be. And as I have read the scriptures and given the warnings, everything in the mind of parents wants to say, yes, that is a danger, but my son's okay. My son isn't there yet. My son hasn't done that. My son. And maybe, you know, my, my son hasn't, you know. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm talking about my son in the future, not my son today. But look, we're talking about our boys. My son, he, he, he has never been interested in those things. He's never gone in that direction. I've never had a problem. I've never seen that before. Well, parent, you're, you're being naive. I'm not calling you parents to be paranoid. Don't be on a paranoid witch hunt. Don't go home and tear up your son's rooms and, and dig into everything. If you're stalking your children, listening in on phone calls, planting cameras, demanding passwords, you've just become driven by fear rather than protection. You are crossing over a line and you will drive your children away from you. What I'm calling you to is care, protection, safety, and understanding. I'm calling you to reject the assumption that your child could not be ensnared by the spirit of harlotry because many a stronger man than your son has fallen. Many a believing man with a future full of potential for Christ has been destroyed by the harlot's allurements. Many a pastor has had to step down from a thriving ministry because of a harlot's allurements. And look, if a pastor who has gotten the training and who has the men uh, that he can go to for accountability and who has plenty of responsibilities that would be devastated if he were to pursue that lifestyle, still pursues that lifestyle to the destruction of his family and his home and his ministry and his testimony and his church, then what makes you think your child is immune? What makes you think it couldn't happen to you? Your son may be everything you want him to be. He may be. Little, literally. Your son may not have a problem. I'm not saying he has a problem. I'm saying he could have a problem. I'm saying the temptation is there. He may be everything that you think him to be or that you want him to be. But do you know that? You can only know that if you're in open communication and if you've put protections in place. Your children ought to be able to pillow their heads at night with a clean conscience. That's what I would desire for my children every day. I hope that's what you desire for your children every day. That at the end of the day, they can pillow their heads at night with a clean conscience. They ought to be able to pillow their heads at night knowing there's nothing between him and his parents. But your child might not be telling you everything about his spiritual life. And with internet and television being what it is today, the only way you can know without inappropriately spying upon your children and thus losing their respect or their trust, is to foster a relationship of trust with them so that you can help protect them as they talk with you, as they tell you what's going on in their heart and in their life. That's why last week's message was so important. Foster open communication with your children. Ask them how they're doing. Yes, put protections in place, but... With, without, without going the fear-driven route. But open up communication. Man's natural inclination is to hide his sin, to put up a front, to look godly, and your child is no different. Your child doesn't want to disappoint you. And being in a church like ours, I guarantee you that regardless of what is in his heart, it is within his capacity to look right on the outside because our church fosters and encourages that to look right good behavior it's part of what we teach and so we need to be careful that we're not being naive 
Point number four. I'm, I give this point to the young men in this room. Young men, God knows. And if, and if you fight this battle, you need help. I know we don't have a lot of young men in here tonight. Lord willing, more will listen over YouTube and on, the, on LegacyBaptistChurch.net. But young men, you've listened to all of this. And I've been primarily talking to your parents and your fathers. I don't know what's going through your mind. But we've all, all men, <laughs> with perhaps a, a rare few exceptions, have these struggles. I know of these struggles. Your father knows of these struggles. You may never get caught. Not everyone does. But you aren't alone in this battle. You're not the only one that faces it. It's, it's a thing that men have to fight. We are visual by nature. Lust is a battle which all men fight. But here's something you need to remember. And remember it well. God knows. Whether or not your parents ever will, God already does. Whether or not your spouse ever will, God already does. God knows. What you do in the darkness, God sees. We know, you know the technology, perhaps in a way that your parents don't. You can keep stuff hidden from them because you know technology. But you can't keep it away from God. And if you don't deal with it, there will be spiritual consequences. If you fight this battle, whether it's a new battle, whether it's an old battle, whether you're old, whether you're young, I'm not just talking to young men here. If you fight this battle, place accountability in your life to help win this battle. Set up protections to help win this battle. Children, get your parents to help you. Father, get other men to help you. Not just father. Man, get other men to help you. Protections are out there. The battle can be won. And it must be won for the spiritual, for your spiritual sake. And the spiritual sake of all those who will or do depend on you. Now, at the beginning of this, we talked about wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. You've heard knowledge today, men. Wisdom is when it becomes real. You have the knowledge. Will you pursue wisdom? Will you apply it? Will you get this taken care of? Maybe some of you are already addicted to pornography, sexual immorality. You need help. You need to get accountability. Fifth and finally, fathers, protect your sons proactively. If you don't have protections in place, get protections in place for your children. Set up accountability. Put the computer in a place where people are constantly walking by, where nothing can be hid. Make sure the TV is somewhere where nothing can be hid. Uh, make sure that, that there's open door policies. Be proactive. If you don't have a filter on your internet, I would highly recommend getting a filter on your internet. If you don't have television guards, uh, find some way to guard the television. If you don't have limits upon the technological access your children have, set reasonable limits. Don't frustrate your children. But set limits to protect them. Now, let me one last time exhort you unto wisdom here. You ought to have a no secrets policy with your children as it relates to technology. You ought to be able to ask, particularly because most of the technology your children have is either given by you or by someone else or is sustained by you. In other words, you pay the internet bill. You, you, you are the one that pays the electric bill. The television is on when you say those things. You, you have control over those. You ought to be able to ask your children to see what is going on in their digital life. You ought to have an open door policy. Uh, I'm not talking, again, I'm not talking about being a cyber stalker. I'm not talking about listening in on their phone calls. I'm not talking about looking over their shoulder every second of the day. 
If you can trust them to talk on the phone, then great, let them talk on the phone. But if you can't trust them to talk on the phone, then don't let them talk on the phone. But don't lurk over them, right, in some overprotective fit. When your children know your reasons and know that you care, if they aren't doing anything wrong, they won't resent the accountability that you are asking of them if it's reasonable. But if you show them you don't trust them and your actions reflect an attitude where you assume they are guilty of something until they can prove themselves innocent, well, then you're going to lose your children's respect. If your children have not shown themselves untrustworthy, then you ought to reward them with your trust. But trust is not blind. And accountability is not lacking trust. You don't show somebody... When you hold somebody accountable, that doesn't mean you don't trust them. Accountability is protection. If this balance is not making sense to you, I encourage you to come see me so we can talk about it further. The balance between not between trusting your children but holding them accountable. And the last thing I want is for you to become a fearful and paranoid parent, unable to enjoy the godly young people you have raised to love the Lord. The last thing I want is to make your children miserable because they now have no room to breathe or to move because they feel completely smothered by your overprotective paranoia. But in this age, parents, particularly because I am fairly confident with most of us, your children know technology better than you do. They've grown up with it. They live with it. It is a part of society in a way it was not for our generations. You must be proactive. And particularly this week as I speak about it in protecting your sons. And the best way that you can do this is to set up accountability, to set up protections suitable for the dangers of this digital age. Do not ever give him a computer hooked up to the internet in his room where he can close a door. Do not ever give him a television in his room where he can close his door and access channels. I mean, unless you give him like two channels and well-guarded well channels, right? Don't do that. Don't put him in that situation. Reasonable, accountable. Foster open communication. Foster trust between you and your children. Encourage them to speak with you. All, everything we talked about last week, go back and listen to the message again if you need. And if you do this, parent, parent, you might just be saving your son's life. You might just be redeeming his spiritual future, his marriage, his ministry, his direction. It's a, it's a dangerous world out there. And Christians have never needed to be more proactive in protecting their children. So let's do it. And let's close in prayer.